Hey everybody, we are Martin, Robert, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head, rent-free. Hey everybody, welcome back to Snakes and Otters. This is episode 65. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. So this week, guys, is a My Heroes episode, and for the three of us, this is a biggie. This is this is the big hero. This is Ronaldus Maximus. Uh, this is Ronald Reagan, the the formative president uh, when we were uh, teenagers and and young adults. Uh, we are children of the eighties. Um, so proudly it, so. It would stand or figure that uh, Ronnie would be big in our pantheon. Absolutely. So, uh, a couple of. Uh, Quick uh, things, guys. Uh, anything, you know, a couple quick statements. Uh, then I'll do the quickie bio. I've always found Reagan to be so uh, much of a leader. Uh, uh, he he had a he had a quality about him, and I don't know that we could ever truly understand or even quantify it. Uh, but the people, you know, they may have opposed him, but they all respected him. And as a general rule, he brought back a alike for the presidency, at least the man in the, in, in the office. And that's not something we'd seen before, really since JFK or Roosevelt before him. Uh, I'd say Eisenhower and Truman, maybe. But, uh, uh, Eisenhower it was, more so than Truman. Right. It was, uh, it's something that I think is worth exploring because the 80s were a formative time, and it, we were, they were also a dangerous time. Uh, especially uh, in the early 80s, during the uh, the Cold War, the height of the Soviet Union, until Gorbachev came to power, uh, we didn't know at the time that when he came to power, th uh, things started to thaw. But uh, before that, they were very, very dangerous. Robert? Yeah, so for me, the, the my big thing with him has always been his, his attitude and, and the inspirational aspect to his character and, and his presidency. He brought back a sense of positivity about the country, about our future, about where we were going, even despite uh, coming out of the 80s. You know, the hostages came home from Iran right as he was sworn in. So he had a, he had a clean sweep of everything negative almost right before he started. And he didn't have to deal with that stuff, and, which is a great bonus, but it was also partially because the Iranians didn't want to deal with him. But he had just this great way of inspiring people to think positively about the future, that things were going to be better than they had been. Mm -hmm. That's very important. That. Uh, very important. It made us feel better about ourselves and believe in ourselves, and then in turn believe that not only would the future be better, but that we deserved that future. Yeah. That, that the country could be better. Again, like you said, coming out of Vietnam, coming out of Watergate, coming out of um, hearings about the intelligence community that painted uh, a very negative light uh, on that. And he said, you know, we, we can be, not only can the future be better, but, you know, we deserve to have a better future because America can be a great place. Yeah. Yeah. Who says that? Nobody says that anymore. <laughs> Nobody says that before. He was yeah. unique with that. And yeah. daggone it, we needed that. We always need that. And 
we should always get that, and rarely do we. Yeah. So, uh, of course, the bio is is fairly well known, but I'll just I'll hit the highlights. Um, he's a Midwesterner, of course, born in Illinois, lived in Illinois. Um, February 6, 1911, uh, Tampico, Illinois. Um, family moved around quite a bit, and um, he was strongly influenced by his mother, who was a, a very religious person uh, and a leader, not just a, a religious person, but a leader in, in her faith, in her church. Um, so that connection of not just being religious but being someone who 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 led others in seeking that faith what was important uh, and of course uh, went to a very small college um, and became a sports announcer very famously uh, announcing for the Chicago Cubs uh, and then went into uh, acting and became a very famous uh, film actor, eventually uh, becoming president of the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, so he was a union leader, a union man. Um, then became uh, very well known on television um, during the early days of TV in, in, in late 50s and early 60s. Um, you know, these kind of anthology type shows were important, and he uh, uh, was the host of General Electric Theater, and it was a very popular television show, and uh, then moved into politics, um, you know, very famously endorsing uh, Barry Goldwater for president in 1964, uh, leaving uh, the Democratic Party he'd been a part of most of his adult life and uh, immediately shook up the scene uh, uh, with his endorsement of uh, Barry Goldwater in 64, and very soon after that became governor of California. Uh, after yeah, the he, first actor <laughs> to become the governor of California. Uh, <laughs> yes. Not the last, of course, as we not, all remember, Arnold, yes. Destined to bear the jeweled crown of California upon a troubled brow, as they say. I've been waiting to use that for a while, by the way. Yeah. And George, um, going from, from governor of California, then he ran for president in 76. Um, came close, but... Yeah, uh, came close. Yeah. Hard Gerald, to imagine against an incumbent president. Yeah, Gerald Ford uh, pulled out all the stops and um, did all the things that he needed to do to, to get the delegates swayed. Uh, and and got uh, got the nomination, but um, it, it's widely said that uh, uh, people, the delegates, left that convention thinking they nominated the wrong fella. Um, after Reagan gave an impromptu speech at the end of the convention, and um, during the 70s, uh, he did a radio commentary. Kind of the uh, the 1970s equivalent of a podcast. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, and then um, 1980 was elected president, and uh, was very much an outsider uh, in his own party. He, he he was different. He he wanted to break from kind of that Nixon Kissinger Ford 
sort of group that had been in charge of the party, um, you know, since the 60s. And uh, he, he wanted to make a break from that and look at things in a different way and approach not just foreign policy but domestic policy differently than uh, his party had in the past. And the 80s became a time of prosperity. Um, you know, I remember it very clearly that, hey, it's, my dad's not changed jobs or anything, but, you know, there's there's money. The economy's picking up. And, um, you know, inflation dropped considerably. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, from God, 12% to 4%. Inflation dropped. Interest rates dropped. Yes. One of the things that... Um, Again, we don't want to be political because that's not the thing, but there's right. a, there tends to be, um, in this day and age, very much a rewriting of the economic history of the 80s. And one of the things that I remember very clearly, you saw the greatest movement from the poorest 20% up yes. out of poverty and into the upper echelons. Absolutely. Now, of course, that means you're also going to see a corresponding drop by some uh, into that 20%, but the point was there's lots of movement up, and that was not, you, you didn't see that. Those who no. were the poorest got better off. Yeah. And then, Some yeah. of it's a, uh, due to the comparison to the, how bad the things were in the late 70s because you had gas wars, you had uh, oil prices through the roof, gas lines were awful, interest rates, you know, you're talking 12, 13, 11 percent, uh, which you know, had that, Yeah, exactly. It was, it was awful. I mean, at places. Uh, and can you imagine that today? We haven't had that since that time, and God hopes we never do. But uh, it, we really almost had nowhere to go but up. However, it could have certainly stayed that way under the wrong leadership. Uh, and uh, Robert, I really, I really like your your layout of he made it. It made us proud to be an American again. I mean, the space program came back. I remember when the Challenger, uh, one of the Challenger launches took, uh, uh, one of the space shuttle launches, I don't think it was Challenger, Columbia probably, early in the 80s, and they showed pictures of people watching that, and you all of a sudden heard this one guy stand up on camera and scream, USA, USA, and I said, what? Nobody does that. This is a time of post-Watergate, post-Vietnam, uh, post-inflation, all this stuff. Nobody does that. That was a sign of the times. That was how shows how the wind had sh shifted, and change had come, and we were definitely the better for it. Yeah, you know, and and Francis and Robert, you both bring up something important here. Again, we want to stress this is not a political analysis. I, you, of course, you have to brush on the politics a bit, but we, we don't want to get into a political analysis. We don't want to comment on current politics. No, we. This is a, a history sort of thing for us, uh, and, and we want to communicate to the listeners what Ronnie meant to us. Mm -hmm. uh, again, as young adults uh, in the '80s, we were we were prime beneficiaries of these changes. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Um, you know, we we saw the difference firsthand. Uh, and, and becoming young adults, we're cognizant of job markets and wages and all of that stuff. Sure. And anybody who comes into their own, into that young adulthood in early, you know, uh, late teens, early twenties, whoever is in office influences them strongly. Yeah. 
And that, that is something that we talked about in the show prep, which is uh, everybody carries their own nostalgia. That's a bad word. I don't like that here because it's far deeper than that. It's not just some sort of longing for something that once was. It's, it's formation. You are formed by the by. All of a sudden, we understand the world, and this is what it is. What you're looking for, it's a common touchstone for the people of the dead, mm-hmm. and that's what he was. Yeah, uh, there you yeah. go. Of course, you always say it best, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he just he, so many things that he did that that, and this is and you know, outside of the political realm, that is what I think makes him worthy of admiration. Uh, he, he brought a sense of optimism and he brought a sense that instead of being ashamed of the country, we became proud of the country again. Amen. Exactly. And that's that had been gone a long that, time. What? That had been gone a long time. It was not in our memory of ever right. being proud. Right. I mean, for us, you know, our... Our memories start in the 70s, basically. They start with, uh, you know, at best, uh, the, the last half of the first part, uh, uh, you know, of Nixon's first uh, term. Uh, but more likely, it's really probably going to be Watergate. And then that's going to form the rest of mm-hmm. the 70s. And it's such a difference. Uh, you know, Jimmy Carter talked about a malaise uh, taking over the country. And that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Reagan's "Morning in America." Now, granted, that's his second campaign. The "Morning in America" uh, slogan and uh, talking about how great things can be—not necessarily how great things are, but how great things can be—it's yeah. such a difference maker. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, uh, presidents, I think, are at their best when they're constantly asking us to look to the future and make things better. And so many of them don't do that. Uh, Reagan was one of the shining stars that always did that, and that's one of the reasons I think he's such a hero. Certainly. Yeah. Well, and and you know, in the again in the pre-show, Francis brought up something that's super important uh, that we're that we're kind of touching on that we're brushing on. It's his ability to communicate these yeah. things to us. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, he was called the great communicator. Again, he knew how to speak to people. Um, the radio addresses, again, very unique uh, every week for, uh, I think it was close to six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, on I think the his radio. acting background helped, too, because he understood the need to communicate con- concisely and precisely. Uh, but... Hey, uh, he also he came across as non-political in his speech. Now that's something that's heightened a lot since then, where everything is simply uh, uh, double speak. It's political speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reagan had a t- had an tendency to act like and be perceived as if he's speaking to a regular as a regular guy to regular people, but never pejoratively or never condescendingly. Uh, as, you know, I'm one of you, you're one of me, and we're going to do this together. Well, that's leadership was. Absolutely. Yeah. And then even as president, of course, the the one that stands out the most is the Challenger disaster speech. Oh, yes. Um, Absolutely. 
we were we were in college when that happened. Yeah. I, I can still remember. You know, we we all have those touchstone moments when something like that happens. I was on my way to production management, <laughs> of all things, uh, the day that happened. Uh, just, and I, it happened just as I was getting ready to leave, so I didn't really get a chance to to hear all the details. Yes, I still remember being stopped going into, uh, I believe it was Fraser Hall, and uh, an acquaintance uh, said, "Have you heard?" You know that the shuttle blew up, and huh? What? What? Yeah. That doesn't happen. That that's not possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was I was in the uh, the uh, newspaper office, the Concord, um, typing up a paper, and they had a little black and white thirteen inch in there, and um, ended up leaving, going to to, to the other end of Fraser and uh, the television by the. Uh, the doors up on the upper level, yeah, and uh, that was my first good shot of it. But yep. you know, I didn't see it live. Thank God. I don't think I would have wanted. To see it. But you know, it's almost worse seeing it later because then you just watch it over and over and over. Yeah, his leadership at that uh, at that moment was was critical, and that speech really was uh, phenomenal. Uh, I forget who the, the poet was that he quoted when he talked about how Nasser slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God. Uh, you know, that's the quote that everybody remembers from that. It's not his words, but he used them uh, in, in a perfect context. Exactly, yeah. The, and he reminded us that, you know, these things have risks. We, we tend to think of them as routine by that time, but they do have risks, but the risks are worth it because we're seekers. You know, humans are, are seekers. And he said, remember that the future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted it belongs to the brave that's right so that's that's still one that is very much right up in here when we talk about our quotes for code of honor uh, that's on my list you know that's one that's that's up here in my head all the time that's right fortune favors the bold as captain benjamin cisco would remind <laughs> us too see you were wondering where star trek was going to come in uh, this was uh, Ronnie was also pre Next Generation too. Uh, you know he uh, he was uh, it was literally uh, his last year uh, in office. Uh, well, 80, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, it was uh, well, but it was October of '87 when it hit. You remember I was over at your house and uh, and I couldn't eat the pizza because I had my wisdom teeth to get out. Never will forget that day. Uh, it's uh, you know a lot a lot has, lots changed since that time. Um, the world yeah. has changed. You know, this is this is before the internet, for goodness sakes. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, our younger listeners will listen, and of course they know that there is such a thing as a time without. But uh, I think they presume that was before electricity, though. That's true. That's you know that's in, that's <laughs> you know that was the previous century. Come on, you know it's uh, the twentieth century. That's you know to, to, to silliness. Well, I, you know that's that's also is a silly place. Another another interesting thing is, uh, you know, technology takes off in the eighties. Yeah, it's true. That's right. Um, uh, all that we knew born in the nineties was conceived in the eighties. Yeah, and I, I've always thought that the the economic changes again when you talk about tax reductions and uh, interest rate reductions, what happens with that money? Well, it, it gets invested in things, and one of the things that got invested in was technology. And, yeah, and the, 
one of the things that you can't underestimate, and granted this is going a little bit towards the political because it's always political when you talk about this, but the capital gains tax cut unlocked a massive amount of wealth in stocks that had been sitting there untapped because as soon as you sell a stock, you've got to, you had to pay a horrendous tax. I think it was 50%. Yep. And nobody wanted to sell their, their stock and, and lose half their gains. And when, when it was cut and all of that money was suddenly freed up to invest in new ventures, that can't be underestimated what that did. That fueled the economic boom of the 90s. And without it, there would not have been uh, the 90s that we knew. Yeah. And the other thing that he did, you know, the simplification of the tax code in, in 86 uh, was a massive thing. One of the things he was most proud of and modern conservatives, quote unquote, uh, would despise this if, they, if, you told, if you didn't tell him Reagan said it, but he was proudest of how many people he removed from the tax rolls and the lower incomes by help, helping them by removing them from the tax rolls. And, you know, today, I think most conservatives would say, well, no, they got to pay their fair share, too, uh, because we've lost our way. But, again, that's a political thing. Don't want to go there. Don't want to go there. But these are the kind of things that, that were far-reaching that, you know, maybe you didn't see the exact benefit that was going to come, but he pushed for them and ended up being a really good thing. Yeah, you know, we... we we still really live in a Reagan economy. We still really live with the changes he made. Those are considered, you know, that's the only thing we could do. Uh, we're, we, nobody's suggesting going back to this 50s, 60s, and 70s era of high interest rates and, and all that. You know, well, no, but they are in. suggesting going back to extremely high taxes and, and other yeah. things. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think there's a great push to go back towards that. Um, but no, a, a tax increase to 35% would be, a, you know, a, a huge fight, let alone going to 50, 60, 70% that it had been in the past. Right. Um, so everything we do, everything we are in these, these past 40 years uh, are still built on his his theories and his uh, his foundation foundation uh, the economy that he built of, of moderate tax rates and letting people keep their money and do what they want with it mm -hmm. yeah it know, really you know a he, large deal I think he had a really good balance of um, you know these are things that the government can and should do uh, and these are things that people should do. Now, we can always argue whether or not that was a, the perfect balance, because obviously it wasn't, mm -hmm. uh, but because there is no such thing as a perfect balance when it comes right. to those sorts of things. It's, it's too messy. Um, but he really wanted to enable the little guy. We've lost this in a lot of today's uh, talk in, in, in politics and leadership and societal leadership, and that is Reagan was all about... He was all for mom-and-pop businesses, small businesses. In the 80s, that was one of the things that they touted the most, that, that drove the economy was small business growth, not big business growth. 
and we don't talk about that anymore because that's not where it's coming from but he saw that that was the best way to go because it gave primary ownership of things to the little people you know to mom and pop shops to small businesses to small startups and that's what drives or at least then drove the economy he was uh, touting the virtues of local of staying local long before anybody else would have done it. He didn't use that language, but ultimately that's what he's talking about here. Uh, as, as much as that, there were no uh, the, the the landscape was very very different in the 80s too, both business and uh, and foreign policy. We haven't talked much on that. Uh, one of the things that uh, that always struck me is you guys remember the movie The Day After, don't you? Yes. Oh yes, it scared the absolute dog crap out of me. Uh, I won't watch it ever again. I saw it when it came on. That was in the early '80s. Uh, I believe we were, I was still in high school. 1983. Yeah, and it was that. That was also a formative uh, specter for all of us. Uh, the fact that the Cold War is so hot, potentially, that we could all be wiped out, and there was a lot of talk about that. Uh, and we were worried. We were always worried. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis being the closest we ever came, that's uh, outside our memory and our experience. Nevertheless, we were afraid of the boogeyman, of the, of the Soviet uh, uh, monster. And it was under Reagan that that changed. And I'm not going to give Reagan all that credit, uh, but he was, he, it was his watch when things started to change. And he had something to do with that. There were many forces that did that. My research in, in recent years says it was inevitable. Uh, it was just who was going to be there when it happened. You, you can't have a totalitarian monolith like the Soviet Union survive. Uh, it's, it's, it's just no way. It, 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 we didn't realize that, though. We thought they were this everlasting boogeyman. And Reagan showed us that, no, we don't have to think that way. We can uh, realize that they are people, too. And uh, we're going to call on them, God forbid, you know, we actually call them out on their problems uh, and saying, no, you need to treat your people better. No, tear down that wall, Mr. Gorbachev. Yeah, Mr. Gorbachev, and other, tear down Exactly. That wall. There, uh, there are so many things that, you know, people before would have said, what? What? What are you doing? Uh, but ultimately… Yes. Calling the Soviet Union the evil empire was one of the most controversial things that he did. Very much so, yeah. And… It was born out of a honest belief that Soviet communism was evil. And if you don't understand that it was an evil system, you don't understand what it was. He was no. right. That's, that's uh, exactly it was right. One of the most oppressive regimes, uh, especially one that was as influential. Most oppressive regimes tend to be smaller because it's easier to oppress a smaller group of people. Uh, and that's what makes the fact that the Soviet Union last as long as it did as brutal as it was, uh, kind of amazing because that kind of brutality almost can't last that long normally. Well, it's a testament to the Russian people that they were able to survive it and to eventually overthrow it. Uh, and not just the Russians, but all the Eastern Europeans uh, that, were, that were there, the Lithuanians, Latvians, uh, Ukrainians, and so many the others. Poles. The Poles, absolutely. Uh, it was so, yeah. Exactly. And, and that's just something they realized they had hitched their wagon to uh, an evil star because ultimately well, it. Let's uh, face it. Their yeah, wagon was sorry. hitched. They didn't hitch it. <laughs> it well, that's correct. That's right. Uh, 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 once the Bolsheviks took power, there's no going back, and uh, that's it. Was 
well, I was going to say almost that we, we we're going to we're going to do a Russian Revolution, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union episode uh, later on this summer, uh, or is it next summer? I forget. Uh, so yeah, next summer. This summer. I was going to say we're almost done, uh, because I think that that's something that's good, that needs a lot more explanation, a lot more. Uh, people don't know that well, and I was shocked that that the fall of the Soviet Union is not as known as it mm -hmm. should be. It's kind of like, oh, well, that was a thing, and you know, it's not a thing anymore. And I'm thinking, no, wait a minute, folks. Uh, perspective and vision, you missed it. Uh, it really, just because they're way over there, doesn't mean that it didn't matter. But anyway, I've gone down a rabbit hole, boys. I certainly didn't mean to. You know how we are. Uh, well, maybe it's time for bourbon. Yeah, uh, as, we haven't even talked Captain, about our bourbon. Yeah, as Captain, I'm going to interrupt a little bit. And uh, I have broken out the old tub, which, again, is very, very smooth. Um, what did we describe it as? 100 proof? Or what did Basil you hear? Basil Hayden. 100 proof Basil Hayden is what Robert's heard it described as. And, and uh, I'll sign that. Um, it's it's good, it's good. That's so. that's what I'm drinking as well. Uh, it's been my thing the last few times here, unfiltered. Uh, it's which is something that you don't really realize. Looking at the bottle, it doesn't particularly look cloudy, but it does a little bit in the glass. And you know that's not a bad thing. Uh, it it takes just it's 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 uh, it's kind of like a it gives a robustness to what it's got. Uh, it's like you're getting you know, the unedited version of the film, so to speak, and uh, you get to get the fullness of the intention, whatever the director intended. That's kind of the way I, I look at this. It's uh, oh, very, very good, very, very good. It's a, yeah. it's a recent acquisition for all of us. We just kind of uh, – who was it that found it? Robert, was it you that discovered uh, it? Yes. Uh, uh, my former pastor uh, had it pointed out to him, and I brought it to our attention. That's right. That's I, I couldn't remember. Uh, it seems like that you know that was months ago, and but uh, it's a uh, it's definitely on my repertoire and shall be for some time. Because until we get together again, I take, can't drink the whole darn thing myself, boys. <laughs> uh, we used to drink a lot of bourbon when we actually got together physically, uh, but now it's just okay, maybe not because we're still virtual at this point. Although that's about to change. Uh, next we're month very, we plan on we plan yeah. on bring being back together again, uh, uh, live yeah. as they say. Yes, we're very hopeful that the uh, the days of the virtual recording uh, will be going by the wayside, and we'll be able to uh, rejoin the brotherhood of snakes and otters in fellowship. So, Robert, what what have you got a glass of? Uh, I sat down. We started before I could grab one. Oh no! Oh goodness! Oh, I apologize. We do have we, rushed into things. Do we need to take a break and let you pour a glass, or <laughs> no, no, no? I was no, going to say. I was going to say, Martin and I can, can hold the fort if you, uh, for a moment or two while you, if you want to go grab something real quick. What, and let you talk about like me? We would never do that. We're recording this for posterity. You would listen to it, we know. So you know, if well, you don't hear it today, no. you'll hear it later. That's actually one of the things that, that I, I really don't. I, I rarely go back and listen. I am so far behind in listening to really? what we're recording. Yeah, oh, I, no. I mean, it's enjoyable in those times when I do, but... You know, I, I've heard it, and the funny thing is, when I do listen to us, as we're we're talking, you know, obviously I remember uh, some of the conversation. Sometimes it's months after when I get around to it, and I'll have a response coming in my head, and it turns out that's exactly what I say. <laughs> yeah, I, I found myself doing the same thing. I said, I should say this. Oh, I did just say that. Okay, yeah. So I, I come to find out that maybe I don't need to listen to it because I said everything I needed to say. Well, you recorded it in your head, so you know, you know what better recording device do you need, yeah. right? 
Exactly. Well, exactly. As just a plug for some of the last few episodes, because I have been listening to some of the stuff that's been published lately. Uh, listeners, again, we publish every Friday at noon. Mm -hmm. uh, all the platforms, whatever your favorite platform is, jump on it and find us. But uh, we just dropped uh, a few episodes ago, uh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah. That was a terrific discussion uh, that Francis led. And we did a very silly um, Is Cereal a Soup episode there a few weeks ago. And that was, uh, that was uh, very fun and goofy. And yeah, that was a Robert idea, if I remember right. Yeah, and it, uh, well, we turned up some really horrible things people used to eat in the 70s. So, <laughs> well, you, yes. you know, that's, we were children of the 70s. Come on, you know, you kind of got to go with what you know, as Bill Adama would say. So, hey. So that was another great thing about the 80s. People stopped trying to combine, like, tuna and jello. We got money now. We don't have to eat that kind of garbage. We're going to eat real food. Um, okay. So, guys, I, I got a uh, – a few years ago, I came across a story online, and it's become one of my favorite Reagan stories. And it's told by, a, I believe, a Reagan biographer by the name of Paul Kengor, K-E-N-G-O-R. Mm -hmm. And he tells the story of um, Bill Clark, one of Reagan's advisors, who uh, early in Reagan's presidency was the um, national security advisor. And Bill Clark was also from California, I believe. And um, he was, uh, you know, again, you, you can kind of know people by the people that are, that are around them. And... Bill Clark didn't act like a big-time political, uh, what would you call it, uh, you know, big-time political wahoo-type person. He, um, he was assigned a driver, uh, a GSA driver, and instead of sitting in the back and never speaking to that driver, he used to sit up front <laughs> in the car and ride around and actually speak to uh, the man. And the driver, uh, one of the things about Washington, D.C., and, and being, a, you know, almost every employer is the government, um, African-Americans moved from the South and Virginia to D.C. to get jobs. And Bill Clark's driver was a black man from Georgia um, who had survived Jim Crow and survived the, the um, you know, oppression of the South and moved to D.C., and his name was Joe Bullock. And um, Joe Bullock <laughs> and Bill Clark became pretty good friends. And, you know, the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s was a time when uh, kind of pop culture moment was cowboy stuff you know sort of urban cowboy and country oh, music oh, yeah. and yes some things <laughs> okay. that might perhaps better be forgotten but uh, <laughs> were very popular at the time john travolta in a cowboy hat look it up folks google it urban cowboy it was actually a bit of a mediocre movie but it was was a political oh, it was it was a cultural deal. thing yeah, yeah, it was a big deal. Everybody was wearing yeah. cowboy boots and hats after that movie, of all things. Yeah, Deborah yeah. Winger and Scott Glenn, and uh, it was, yeah, it was a big deal. 
Yes, uh, Johnny Lee, looking for love in all the wrong places. That's where that song came that's from, and that's where the got its big, uh, big start. That's right. That's right. And riding bulls and and gillies down in Texas, the whole bit. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Joe or uh, Bill Clark's father had given uh, Joe Bullock a Western style belt, and I think even I had one of these in the early seventies with the, the leather with different colors and you know they stamp your name in the back of it and designs and all this kind of stuff so Joe Bullock loved this Western belt and showed it off all the time under his suit jacket um, well it, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were going to be making a state visit and protocol meant gifts so White House meeting, President, Vice President, um, Bill Clark, a couple of other people trying to decide what they should get Prince Philip as a gift for this state visit. And Clark suggested a, one of these Western belts, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and Reagan really didn't know what that was, you know. Uh, what do you mean by a Western belt? And again, they're, you know, they're Californians, they're ranchers. And Clark said, well, my driver, Joe, has one on. Let's call him up here. So again, this is a, you know, this is a gentleman. He's, all he's ever done, you know, is drive these figures around D.C. Um, he's never been really within 50 yards of anybody, you know, the Oval Office or anything. But they call him up there, and there he stands in the middle of the Oval Office with the president, the vice president, and he starts crying. Mm. And they all freeze. Uh, George Bush, you know, Bill Clark, they all freeze. But Reagan walks over to him, pats him on the shoulder, and says, well, Mr. Bullock, I understand you've got a belt to show me. Breaks the ice, and just that human touch understanding that this is a man who's been through so much and then this moment <laughs> is overwhelming and and just kind of comes to the rescue and I always said that that was this you know this terrific story that really showed that you know on the inside say what you want on the inside he was a genuine decent person yeah yeah, yeah. so I think yeah, that's, had, um, what was that? I, just, I think that's uh, even if you don't know that story, but if you if you were around when Reagan was president, I think you would understand that, and and you felt that even. Okay, I saw the gestures, but I didn't I didn't know what you were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just you could feel that even if you didn't know that story. Right. Well, you know. If you were around then, and you, especially if you uh, had any kind of knowledge of, of the man or paid any attention to him, that story rings true. Yeah. You have no trouble believing that story. That's right. It's consistent with what his public face was. Right. He was able – that was what made him the great communicator was he was able to do that one-on-one. -on -one. Take a guy who, as you said, came from some of the humblest beginnings and was overwhelmed with emotion at standing in the Oval Office in front of the president, the vice president, something that – you know, 
he never would have thought it would be possible, even a, a driver, even as a driver for one of these lower muckety mucks, but still one of the muckety mucks. And you know, I can easily see him getting up and coming around because you were just people to him, I think. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think it probably it, if it bothered him, it bothered him not that he was uncomfortable about it, but that they, but this guy Joe was uncomfortable and or you know was so overwhelmed. Yeah, and he understood another person's distress. Yeah, and that you know that's an amazing thing. Now, you know, I think one of the things you have to also bring up with with Reagan is his family life. Now, yeah. of course, he was uh, uh, the only divorced president uh, up until recently. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the uh, first one to be divorced. Of course, uh, he you know Nancy uh, is the uh, was the the long time love of his life. Uh, they were inseparable, and she was his biggest fan, and he was her biggest fan. Mm-hmm. Of course, he had uh, kids from the first marriage as well as the second. Not all of them got along, you know. It wasn't uh, all all rosy, but that was kind of typical. I think that made him uh, kind of relatable. In yeah, it did. It very much so. Yeah, you know, he all families have issues, and yeah. his was no different. And uh, that that actually, I think, endeared him uh, to the people. The people loved Reagan as a general rule. They may have disagreed with him, even his political opponents, but they at least talked. They at least worked through stuff. That was, you know, we see that as, as you would never do that today. And yeah. yet that was commonplace in, in, at his time. Not just his time, uh, but before that time. Yeah, he was one of, not the last, but one of the last presidents who could work across the aisle. Uh, we don't have that anymore. We've talked about that and lamented that uh, greatly. There's no need to go over that again. Mm-hmm. But he was one of the last. You got a little bit of it with with George W. Bush, or uh, George H. W. Bush, uh, Bush the elder, but not as much because uh, the war was very divisive. Obviously, the, that and plus he was a one-term president. Um, as we said with Bush, you know, his biggest mistake was not holding the war closer to the election because mm. uh, he was massively popular after it. Uh, but probably Clinton's first term, just 10 years, you know, not even 10 years, eight years after Reagan, and that conviviality, that ability to work across the aisle was gone. From Clinton's second term on, uh, it, was, it was, you know, no holds barred, all the gloves were off. Uh, and, and I don't blame the Republican Congress for that. I blame both sides for that. Right. Uh, well, we talked about one. we've talked about it before. When you style your a political enemy as the devil, you don't make a deal with the devil. Right. You just can't. You destroy the devil, and that's where we're at today. And that's the thing about Reagan. The devil, the evil, was not inside the country. It was right. our foreign opponents. It was the evil empire, the Soviets. He never wavered on that. That is what brought down the Soviet Union. He did not see his political opponents in this country as evil to be forever destroyed. And, you know, to me, that's just one of the great things about it. Yeah. You know, that's that's another one of my favorite stories, too, is uh, he met in person with congressmen all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. wouldn't just stand there and call names. He he actually tried to meet with people, and he was trying to convince a Democratic congressman, uh, you know, to vote for a, a 
one of the economic uh, reform package bills, and the congressman said, well, I'm not sure. I'm going to go pray about it. And Reagan said, well, if you get a busy signal, that's just me in there ahead of you. <laughs> I remember that story. <laughs> we prayed for it, too. Um, you know, so he could, he could just, you're right, it, it, it was not about demonizing the other side. It was, it was about politics as compromise, as what it's supposed to be built as. Yes, work together to get things done. Yeah. That was the intention. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And recognize that everybody can win. You just can't win completely, maybe. But yeah. everybody can win if you work together. But he also wasn't afraid to win in his own right straight out. And, and again, That's right. the defining moment in it, early in his presidency is the air traffic controller strike. Yeah, I was, uh, you you'd mentioned that in the show prep. I was hoping you were going to get to that because that was – uh, that was unheard of. That was he did what? Uh, that was you know people would say he overreached, but uh, the proof is in the pudding. In the end, everything changed for the better, mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's amazing yeah. that he well, was he, able to get to get away with it. Yeah. Well, he strongly felt that public service unions should not be able to strike. Again, he was a union leader, so he believed in unions. They gave him credibility. Yes. So he he believed in in collective bargaining. And he was he wanted to collective bargain, you know, with the air traffic controllers. But he just he did not believe that a public union could go on strike. And when they did, he said, "Well, everybody that doesn't come back to work is fired." And it seemed it was it was this very decisive moment, something that strongly contrasted, I think, with people's experience with both Ford and Carter. Yeah, they would have absolutely never done anything like that, and people right. would have just said, you know, you think, what? Yeah. Interesting thing, uh, a good deal of those air traffic controllers that uh, did not come back who were fired were quietly rehired uh, sometime later. Uh, that's not commonly talked about. So even in winning, uh, he was magnanimous. Mm-hmm. So, that's, you know, that's how you do it. He did have a lot of wins. He had some losses, too. You know, uh, He lost his way a little bit on the Iran-Contra Iran affair. Uh, he, he, he let he – probably was a little bit of uh, – he let his advisors talk him into things as well as um, you know, you're in power for six years. You probably get the idea that you can do whatever you need to no matter who you are. You know, uh, It's not just him, not just anybody, any other president, but uh, did some things that uh, – uh, shouldn't have gone down the way they did. And uh, if it had happened in his first term, he never would have gotten reelected. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, by the time the end of the second term comes along, most people think he could have won a third term. So even though he had that happen in the middle of the, the, the second term, mm -hmm. uh, which is probably one of the main reasons why he, the Republicans lost the Senate in that second term, uh, he probably still could have won a, first, uh, a third term yeah. in 1988, which is just astounding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a very valid criticism of his management style. Um, he, he put down a set of uh, principles or ideas and then let other people carry off with them without really, you know, getting into details on everything. Um, and and well, we, I guess it could be argued that it's kind of hard for a president to be in the details of everything that's going on. And he should really. 
But uh, that's the thing, though. That's That was one of his greatest strengths, but as is often the case, your greatest strength is also one of your greatest weaknesses. Yeah. Because one of his yeah. greatest strengths was, this is the vision. This is the goal. This is what we want. And then from there, he trusted people to do the right thing. And maybe this is a little bit naive of him at the national level to think that everybody underneath him shared those same ideals mm-hmm. and goals and values. Yeah. And they don't all do uh, share those same. Uh, and even if they do, sometimes they think the methods are worth the uh, the, the risk. And yeah. that's not always the case. Right. And, you know, so it's a great strength, but it can be a great weakness because, as you say, a president can't really follow up on all the details. He's got to trust the people he puts in place. And I think he was, you know, he, he, one of the great phrases that people still use is you, we attribute to him trust but verify. And the verify is where we kind of fell short that time. Yeah, the old Russian proverb that he, uh, he used with Gorbachev uh, after the INF Treaty uh, was signed. It, you know, the first president in history to reduce the number of nuclear arms. Yep. Yep. Um, Provii Nostro... Oh, man, I wish I could remember how to say it in Russian. I can't remember how to say it in Russian. It's like Provii no, Nostovii or something like that. Now, trust but verify. Trust but verify. So, well, fellas, we're, we're hitting at about 50 minutes here, which seems like short shrift for Ronaldus Maximus, but uh, I, I fear that we could go on for hours and hours and hours. So, oh, we right. could. I mean, we didn't even talk about... Uh, his political career in California. We didn't talk about his time as head of the the Actors Guild Union, uh, Screen Actors Guild, and we didn't talk about his time as uh, a movie star. I mean, he wasn't an A-lister, but he was was famous. He was pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close to an A-lister, so... Yeah, I mean, he was close. He he was up for a couple of roles that some others uh, were famous for, but, you know, he didn't get... uh, uh, I think he was up for... um, some Errol Flynn roles that uh, uh, he didn't get, and you know who knows if the roles had been reversed and Reagan had gotten them, uh, how things would have gone differently. Yeah. But well, uh, he and Flynn starred together in Santa Fe Trail. Actually, they yes, they, they, they knew each other fairly well, and it's actually a very good movie. Uh, it is. Uh, it is. Yeah. Uh, and you know he wasn't a uh, he wasn't a bad actor. Uh, he had some no, he was excellent. Yeah. He had some goofy ones too. The whole Bonzo thing is just, you know, yeah. it's, it's, come on. Uh, but, but, it's he good, was, but it's fun. Yeah, he was a leading man, though. He was not a character actor, supporting actor all the time. I mean, later in his career he was, but during the meat of his career he was, he was a leading guy. man. Yep. So, but you're right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff. Again, we just brushed on all that. We brushed on uh, again the uh, the radio addresses. Uh, those. A selection of those have been published on CD and that for years. So, listeners, if you ever get a chance to come across those somewhere, pick them up. They're well, amazing listening. And you know they're still valid today. A lot of the points. Yeah. In there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a. Yeah. That, he's uh, he's one for the ages. Yeah. In many yeah. respects, he was, he was uh, talking his, about stuff in '76, '77, '78 that he would do in '83, '84, and '85. And, and again, you're right. It's it's all still stuff that, uh, to a large degree, we would recognize that stuff right now. Uh, one thing, you know, we didn't cover, and I think we should, because um, you know, he he did some firsts. 
uh, first woman nominated and uh, approved for the Supreme Court. Yep. It was a Ronald Reagan appointee. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he restructured the court, because uh, obviously as president for eight years, you get a chance to do that, uh, to a great deal. And uh, several of his choices served uh, well past him. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist was uh, a pick of Reagan, and he, he served until his death in 2005. So he, he did things that really had a lasting effect on the country. Mm -hmm. Part of being a good leader. Yep, that's exactly leader. right. You know, and I think that's, that's the big key right there, and I, again, why it's not just the accomplishments that were so formative. Uh, for us, we responded to his leadership. Yeah. You know, and he, he wanted all Americans to be equal. He wanted all Americans to have opportunity. Um, and he wanted us to be our best. And, and that, that makes him a hero. That's exactly right. Part well our, said, sir. Couldn't have said it better. Part of our fabric. So, Francis, buddy, what is up for next time? Pop culture time next time, as we might remember. And we're going to go, it's another 80s icon, but not exclusively that. Uh, Robin Williams, the tortured oh, genius of Robin Williams. Oh, so formative to us. And uh, genius is unbelievably accurate. Uh, we're going to explore him, his comedy, the man, the tragedy, uh, of course. Uh, it, it, it colors so much. But he was someone that deserves a little bit of time spent with. So we're going to do that next episode. Please join us. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.